Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show and podcast featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our guest, like all guests, will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. And he will be a repeat guest, a recent one, Harvard psychiatrist Kevin Majors. He's going to talk a little more about anxiety and its positive relative flow. But first, let's review some of the high points from his last interview, which I've gotten really good feedback about relating to anxiety in particular and his book recommendations. Well, tell us about some of the feedback you've gotten, Andrew. You know, especially from from clinicians that I've talked to, physicians as well as uh, social workers and counselors, this is kind of a different way than is traditionally thought to, to look at anxiety. And the way that Dr. Majors explains it is so, I don't know, it just makes uh, inherent sense to a lot of people. And I've, I've gone on to recommend that website multiple times to folks. Which website? The OptimalWork.org. Yeah, and we're going to ask him about OptimalWork.com. Dot com, and, I'm Yes, sorry. dot com. And, uh, but first, I want to start out with a little segment I'm calling Great Moments in Parenting. Those are in parentheses. Now, and this does deal with anxiety. So what happened is last week, my wife and uh, the one daughter remaining at home were away on college visits. So I was home with just my two 13-year-old twin boys. I had just gone to bed. I was asleep. And all of a sudden, I hear on my bedroom door, knock, 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 knock. It's like, oh, I wake up badly, which is one reason I'm in dermatology. <laughs> so one of my sons is outside. Uh, Dad, uh, um, my, my brother has, uh, uh, he saw a mouse in his room, a mouse. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, it's a mouse. Dad, what should he do? And I'm not thinking well. What would you do if you got woken up in the middle of the night and wake up badly and some child said they saw a mouse in the room? I did what any self-respecting dad who doesn't want to get out of bed did. I said, we have two cats in the garage, don't we? Yes, Dad. Toss them in the room, close the door, and let your brother sleep with you. So the next morning, I get up. I wasn't woken up again. And I go open the bedroom door where the cats are and one of the cats just comes strutting out head held high and I see over on the floor just one small like one inch diameter piece of moist mouse flesh with the muscle attached to the fur. (laughs) Yes the job was done. The boys slept and we haven't seen a mouse since. So how does this relate to anxiety? My sons were incredibly anxious about this little furry creature, the mouse. But we're going to talk about better ways to get rid of anxiety than two cats in your bedroom at night. Although, if that could get rid of my anxiety, I would let those cats in my bedroom Yeah, it sounds like I keep them around. Those are good cats. Oh, well, at least one of them is. (laughs) One of them is a good mouser. But, you know, anxiety, as I think I mentioned in the last show, is something that I have been uh, trying to fight for the last 30 years. And so I want to talk about some of the high points with Andrew about the last interview and also some of the follow-up because I've been following uh, using one of the books he recommended weekly, one chapter a week as it says. And this is the Mindfulness and Acceptance Workbook for Anxiety. The authors are Forsyth, F-O-R-S-Y-T-H, and Eifert, E-I-F-E-R-T. And this book and what uh, Kevin said last time were revolutionary, uh, and we'll get into why they're revolutionary. But first of all, he clarified that anxiety is an emotion. It comes unbidden. We can't control it. And anxiety is not what causes our suffering. What causes our suffering is our response to it, worry, dread, rumination. Right, and then it, it causes you to develop that negative bias, right, in decision-making. So you, you start to think, yeah, you make bad decisions because you're reacting to the anxiety. And he defined anxiety as a fear of rational thoughts, whereas an obsession is a fear of irrational or unreasonable thoughts. And he said anxiety is a high adrenaline state, and that adrenaline is something to give us a superpower. But usually we fold with the anxiety Tonight, he's going to also talk about flow, which he says it's another high adrenaline state, but a very positive one that whether or not we realize it, we all seek it. So I can't wait to hear how we can turn the adrenaline of anxiety into the adrenaline of flow. But what the mind-altering aspect of dealing with anxiety was from Kevin last time is that you can never take care of anxiety by taking it head on. It's like a Chinese finger trap. You know, one of those ones where you put between your fingers and the harder you pull it apart, the tighter it gets on your fingers. Right. 
So in other words, the more you battle it, the harder it pushes against you. Uh, when I was in high school in, in uh, basketball, we had this machine called the Leaper. And this wood machine had two shoulder pads attached to this big chassis, and you would push up against it. You would crouch down and then push up against it. And the harder you pushed against it, the harder it pushed against you. But you could also move it away with just a finger. Oh, wow. So anxiety is best not being pushed away, but just being accepted. That's why it's called mindfulness and acceptance therapy. On another episode with Kevin, I hope to cover mindfulness. Today we're going to cover flow. But the fact that you don't, it's, it's like asking somebody not to think of a pink elephant. What do they do? All they can think about is a pink elephant. Well, someone says, well, don't think about those anxious thoughts. All you can think about are <laughs> the anxious thoughts. So that's why this is so helpful. It's like a completely different approach than anything I'd ever seen, and it's actually working for me. Um, maybe those of you who get to mm, suffer through that uh, annual Bishop's Appeal video in your parishes can relate to this. <laughs> okay? I like giving to my Bishop's Appeal. I always give to it. But the video, for some reason, just has... It's, it's not something I look forward to. So I was asked uh, a few weeks ago to be the person to turn the video on in the front of church. They said, oh, it's foolproof, Tom. No problem. You press these three buttons in order and it will come on. So I go up there. I press the three buttons in order and it comes on in Spanish. <laughs> we are not a Spanish-speaking parish. <laughs> Nothing against Spanish, but hardly anybody understood it. And of the buttons available to me, none of them could change it from Spanish to English. Typically, I would have freaked out. I gone, can imagine that'd be stressful. Yes, gone tunnel vision in front of the parish. You hear people laughing. I was completely calm, not stressed at all. It's because of some of the things I've been doing. But I just said, okay, I bet there are some remote controls here. And there were, and I figured out which of the three belonged to the machine I had to change and was able to get it playing. But the fact that that didn't stress me out in a situation that for the last 35 years of my life would have tells me that this is working. There are things I'm doing daily. I don't want to uh, spoil any thunder. It's, it's all in that book, which you can, you can do, the Mindfulness and Acceptance Workbook for Anxiety. But it is making a difference. I, I was interested in a study if the, the bishop's appeal donations would go up or not. Whether you heard it in your native tongue. I don't know. We'll see. I thought Tom was trying something new here. Yeah, if we did it in Spanish with the people. That's true. Would it have been subliminal thinking to get them to donate more? <laughs> now, of course, Kevin talked about some really boring things that help with anxiety coping, like sleeping seven to eight hours a night, getting regular exercise. But he talked about a certain type of, of exercise. Yes. And I, I found that that's something that so many people kind of ignore. Most people count in their head kind of their exercise quota as, you know, playing with the kids or I'm physical at my job or how many steps I got, <laughs> you know, and those are all good things. Don't get me wrong. But the thing that works, especially with anxiety is the high intensity exercise. Right. So something where you're going anaerobic. So there's two different types of metabolism going on in muscles where you're using energy. And uh, the anaerobic one doesn't require oxygen, but you can only do it for short bursts of time. The aerobic one is something you can do continuously. It relies on the oxygen that your blood is uh, delivering to the muscles. And so he said simply, if you do a five-minute warm-up, and this can be running, it could be doing an elliptical, it could be doing a bicycle. It could be doing high-intensity interval training, like uh, T25, Insanity-type stuff. But the Insanity, the T25 is a milder version of it. I do warm-up for five minutes. And then in the second five minutes of a whole 10-minute workout, do at least three 30-second anaerobic bursts. These can be sprints, pedaling as fast as you can do, uh, doing the stair-stepper or elliptical as fast as you can. And what you want to do is get your heart rate into 80% or higher of its maximum. And so the maximum heart rate is roughly 220 minus your age. So for a 20-year-old, you would want to get your heart rate above 160. For a 40-year-old, you'd want to get it above 144. And a 60-year-old would want to get it above 128 for 30 seconds, just three times, and doing this every other day. Because what it does is it makes more connections of the nerves in your brain. And when it makes more connections to other nerves, you think more clearly. 
And I'm going to ask him some other questions because he recommended another book I've read since the last time. It's called Spark, S-P-A-R-K. And it's about the brain and exercise, how exercise affects the brain. And John Rady is another Harvard psychiatrist like Kevin who uh, wrote this. And uh, in the beginning, he talks about Naperville, Illinois, where the students' test scores on international and national tests skyrocketed when they started regular morning fitness classes, not just physical education where they're learning a sport, but instead of sports-based physical education, it was fitness-based. Isn't that something? Yes. I think it's a great idea because everybody, you know, you hear about talks as to how to incorporate gym and physical activity into school, but I like that idea starting in the morning and basing it on fitness rather than on some specific skill set. Oh, one of the favorite things I saw that they did in Naperville in grading gym classes, and I thought this was brilliant. So... Uh, the author of the book talks about visiting the school, and he sees the students early in the morning out at a track, and the students are running a mile. It's like, so you've got the athletes, and then you've got the non-athletes, okay? But all of them have one thing in common. They are wearing a watch that is measuring their heart rate. Yeah. They are not graded on their time. They are graded on their percent of max heart rate. And so... There, there might be a, a, you know, a girl coming through at like a 10-minute mile, but he looks at her max heart rate and said, Girl, you are killing it today, and you are actually working harder than my best athlete right now. Wow. So it, it's a real way that you can truly affirm somebody because the effort they are putting out is measured and, and is solid data that can be used. Man, I li- and that's also setting them up for good life habits as well. Yes, yes. So they can associate exercise in a positive way with themselves where the rest of their lives till that point, it's been something negative. Well, let's go to the medical trivia question of the day and get Kevin on the phone here. And the question, of course, is going to deal with anxiety in a, in a way. And that is in the brain, it appears that anxiety is due to hyperactivity of a part of the brain called the amygdala. It's a small area found on each side of the brain, somewhere near the bottom middle. The word amygdala is the Greek word for an edible item. What edible item? And as a hint, this particular item and its smell plays a role in discovering the cause of poisoning in many classic murder mysteries. Dun, dun, dun. We'll be back with Dr. Kevin Majors after the break here on Dr. Doctor. We're back with our guest interview today, talking about anxiety and flow. Dr. Kevin Majors returning from Harvard Medical School and Cambridge, Massachusetts. He was born and raised in Minnesota, went to college at University of Dallas. He did medical school and psychiatry residency at University of Texas Southwestern Medical School, still in Dallas, and a fellowship at the Beck Institute of Cognitive Therapy and Research in Philadelphia. And he's been at Harvard for a decade where he teaches cognitive behavioral therapy to psychiatrists in training. Kevin, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. Thanks. I'm great to be back. Well, in our last episode with you on anxiety, you clarify that anxiety itself doesn't cause us suffering. It's our response to it that does. And you added that sometimes or often with anxiety, there's some kind of idol that we're afraid of losing. Can you clarify what you meant by that? Yeah, so I think that when we are experiencing a lot of fear, the, it's because there's something that we love is at risk, something that we're afraid of losing. And I think that the... Uh, it's interesting that if you understand the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, you know, that and it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Mm-hmm. And the gift of fear is a remarkable thing. It's a gift that casts out all fear, except for one, which is the fear of being separated from God, whom we love. And that prepares the way, all the way up those other gifts, till you get to the gift of wisdom which is to savor the constant presence of the beloved God, always. And so we always need to have this sense that God loves me, and I love God, and all is right in the world. And no matter what happens, really, no matter what, as long as we can say that, in some way, all is right in the world. That is just like enough of a jewel that we could end the interview here. That was just <laughs> tremendous. But we have more honey like wisdom dripping from Kevin's <laughs> lips the rest of the show. That was tremendous. Now, you teach cognitive behavioral therapy, but last time you talked about 
what some psychologists think is radical, something called acceptance and commitment therapy, or ACT. Now, is ACT a subset of cognitive behavioral therapy or different from it? Yeah, it's a subset of it in one sense, because if you go to like the World Congress of Cognitive Therapy, there's going to be a lot of stuff there on ACT. And so it's, it's part of that universe of cognitive behavioral therapy. And the way ACT thinks about therapy, the way it thinks about research and how do you prove a therapy works, it's, the, it's just part of the CBT tradition. Okay. And all the original ACT people are just really behavioral therapists. And so, and another hand is the developments and evolution in the way we handle things. And the prime difference is this, that traditional cognitive therapy works with thoughts and their content to try to work with distortions in thinking to come up with a more balanced alternate thought. Okay. And that can be very good and very powerful. And that what includes reframing? At, well... See, that now what ACT looks at is the process of thought, that it's worrying, that it's ruminating, that it has this, this negative churning to it. Yes. And then tries to see how do you alter the process without having to get into the messy content. All right. So would, would and you that do mean that, that through behaviors. So yeah. is reframing CBT and not ACT? I would think that it's both. Oh. I think all, all cognitive therapy ultimately comes down to reframing because let's say you keep having this thought, I'm going to get fired, and you're worrying about getting fired. Okay. And you try to come up with evidence against and evidence for until you have a balanced alternate thought. Really, in the end, I think what happens is whenever you have this thought, I'm going to be fired, you just see it as a chance to practice a new way of thinking. But that is the light of reframing. Ah, here's my opportunity to practice. And so you start to see these negative thoughts as things that can trigger a new behavior, practicing, practicing how you respond, how you handle, and ultimately how you, what behavior you choose to do. No, so in that way, that's what led to the development of this, the so-called third wave behavioral therapies, like ACT. Man, that's incredible. It, it reminds me, when I was a kid, we would always have to complain about doing some type of chore that we had to do. And my dad would always remind us, no, we get to do it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And so I, I've carried that with me. And uh, I yeah, think there is exactly. something, you know, reframing it, it's an opportunity. I like that a lot. Now, yeah, if you were to ask, how could this chore bring out the best in you? Like, what's the most benefit you could get from this or others could get from it? So that would be reframing as well, that you're really looking into it in a new way. In the moment when people are feeling the anxiety seems to be the best bang for the buck time to do something about it. Now, last time, one of those things you, you told me to do during in the moment anxiety was to take four seconds to take a complete inhale of breath and then just let it out naturally. And that if I did that for 90 seconds, the anxiety would pass, which I have found to be shockingly and thankfully true. What other things can people do in the moment when they are feeling the intense anxiety? The very best thing they could do is to say three words, bring it on. <laughs> that would be the best. So imagine a person is going to be playing uh, in a, like a recital, playing cello in a recital. And, you know, she's going to be on stage by herself and she's getting nervous. Well, the more she tries to calm down, the more she's really turning her own adrenaline into a threat. Ah. And she's treating it like a threat, which means it's going to trigger itself and make her even more nervous. Now, when you get into a threat mode like that, your adrenaline gets shunted to your body to increase the power of your muscles. But that produces a shaking. It's right. meant to help you with the fight-or-flight response. You yes. can fight harder or flee faster. Well, the thing is, all you need to do is shift your frame of the adrenaline to say, oh, this is going to help me perform at my best. Bring it on. And you get excited to do your best on this performance. You're going to treat this performance like, like practice and an opportunity to learn. If you can say, if you can shift your frame, that lights a light in your mind and totally changes how your body handles adrenaline. And now, instead of powering your muscles for fight or flight, 
it powers your intelligence for flow so that you can now reach your highest level of performance. Now, so you actually, if you can before performance, just say, great, bring it on. This will help me do better. It is enormously transformative. So how long does it take for that to happen? Like I have 13-year-old sons preparing for a very uh, anxiety-provoking event that they have to pass something that they're going to do. And if they don't, they don't get another chance for four months to do it again. How, mm-hmm. when they're feeling stressful, can this actually help them? Or is this something that takes weeks yeah. or months of practice? It can take one second to learn how to do it. So uh, Jeremy Jameson, when he was, a re- he was in a graduate school here at Harvard, he did a study of helping students with the GRE. Okay. And it was mostly, I think it was Harvard students. And he had half of the group read a kind of sham statement, didn't really say much. <laughs> the other half read this basically one message. You might think that being anxious will hurt your performance. No. However, recent research has shown it actually improves your performance on tests. Yes. So if you get anxious, just know this is your body helping you to perform at your best. The, on the actual GRE, the group that read that one, one short you know, little paragraph did 70 points better <laughs> on the math section. Wow. Now, the, original, the other students got, had an average score of 700 on the math section out of 800, but this group had 770 as an average. That's incredible. And, yeah, but the cool thing is they measured their adrenaline levels, because you can check the saliva and their metabolites, yes, you yes. can see. And they, the group that did the reframe to see the adrenaline itself is good actually had higher levels of adrenaline. Ah, uh, so it's not the level of adrenaline, it's what they're doing with it. It has nothing to do with the level, it's purely your assessment of it purely your assessment. And that determines if it gets shunted to mental or fine motor performance or to fight or flight performance. Adrenaline Uh. is the ultimate performance enhancer. So like if you need to give a talk in front of a large group, adrenaline gives you the power to be fluent with your words, to remember things very clearly, to connect with more people in the audience with your eyes, to be more, uh, to project your voice better, to even be more physically attractive. Adrenaline is a superpower that allows you to do all of that. You, you only have your highest IQ when adrenaline is high. It's what it's for, to give you that boost to IQ. You know, I think this might have been an advantage for me in college because it freaked out my classmates that I told them I loved tests. <laughs> That's the attitude, yeah. Because, and that, just that attitude will increase your score. Isn't yeah. that something? Wow. Yeah, the adrenaline is there as a superpower. You have to just learn how to use it. So that's why, for the longest time, we're trying to teach people how to calm down. Like, if you read books on Amazon on anxiety, yeah, 98% of them are on how to calm down. Like, no, you don't want to calm down. You just want to reframe the adrenaline. And then, gradually, yeah, it will get to like, a, you know, because you're not amping yourself up by dreading it so much. You start to have just really comfortable levels of high-performance adrenaline. So let's say I have a very high-stakes, uncomfortable meeting coming up with several colleagues, and I'm not looking forward to it because I know that ugly things could be said by others. What are the best things I can do to keep my emotional state where I am going to be at my best? So are you going to act out of fear or for love? If you have a sense of what kind of qualities would love best bring out in me in that meeting, to be patient, to be understanding, to be protective, you might think of the different qualities there, and then you get excited to practice them. And the adrenaline will then help you to have your highest IQ so that you can do those things in that meeting. So it's all about how you frame the challenge. If you see the challenges of it's, a, it's, a, it's really the perfect opportunity that you need to grow in a new way. So God's always giving us ways to grow in the virtues we most need. We just often miss them. Yes, because we're afraid that there could be pain involved, but it's the pain of growth. It's just, the stretching that we need. It's just like you said last time, when we're exercising more, we get sore muscles, but there's a good soreness that we all experience. Exactly. Well, and Kevin, talking about exercise, you brought up something really good in your last interview about BDNF. 
and how this chemical is released when we we undergo anaerobic exercise and it or even aerobic yeah or, or aerobic or okay. even aerobic yeah. okay so yeah when when we exercise this leads to lower anxiety by increasing more neurons being formed in the brain how how does that work could you repeat that and kind of describe the best ways to incorporate that yeah so there's there's two things that happen when people are under chronic stress. You know, uh, one is that they're uh, they're chronically amped up, you know, and in a kind of threat state, and then their neurons respond by uh, getting stubbier because the high cortisol levels can 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 this is a theory at least shear off the twigs. Mm-hmm. Your neurons should look like you know, trees without leaves and yes. with millions of little twigs, and those get sheared off through cortisol. So the BDNF that you get from intense exercise causes the trees to re-sprout those twigs within hours even. Uh, the ANP that your heart puts out yes. then works to turn off the rest of the stress reaction. So cortisol goes back to normal, and you kind of cycle through uh, your stress reaction. Now, and so BDNF itself probably provides... Um, um, well, it certainly improves like test performance and your ability to recall things in memory and verbal fluency and writing speed. Uh, probably the ANP is more about turning off your whole chronic threat alert. Now, you mentioned last time about doing anaerobic bursts for 30 seconds. What was the import of that versus purely aerobic exercise? That the research has shown that when you add sprints to a workout, you can get a 50% increase in BDNF levels. Ah, okay. So if you're going to, if you did a 25 minute run and had one 30 second sprint, I believe that was the, the research uh, was for that method, and you get a 50% increase in BDNF. Other things have shown similar results with even 10 minutes of running with three 30 second sprints. I say running because that's just the easiest to do sprints. It could be any kind of exercise where you can really do sprints. Okay, so that works both for cognitive or thinking ability as well as for stress? As well as for, yeah, turning off the chronic uh, kind of activation of your threat system. So really, the, the aerobic exercise does the same kind of good. You just get far more benefit with the anaerobic, with the, the, the sprints or the yeah, high intensity. Yeah, perhaps, and perhaps you get it faster. Fast. Okay, best bang for your butt, buck. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Uh, one thing we didn't get to cover last time was um, how or if you use medications for your anxiety patients. Um, I, I sometimes do, uh, but it has to be with an understanding of what does the medicine do. Now, the most fascinating use of medication is as a memory modifier so that after you do an exposure exercise, so say a person's, you know, they're uh, – afraid of heights and you do an exposure to a very high place right at the end of the exposure there are medicines you can give a one-time dose of that can completely erase that fear oh whatever you did yeah so is that like uh, ketamine type stuff or (laughs) it's a propanol oh propanol a beta blocker 40 milligrams of a beta blocker given within five minutes of the exposure right after the exposure can actually erase that threat label entirely. It's, it's a very interesting and so powerful So give effect. us a, a clinical use of that. So, um, you know, for instance, you know, one, one thing I, I remember doing was someone who had this thought, they were going to give a big presentation, and they had this thought, I'm a fraud. Oh, yeah, imposter and, syndrome. And, yeah, the imposter syndrome. And when I had the, the person write it down, and then they read it again and again, you know, just in their head silently, they, their anxiety got very high. And then I had them continue reading it, this time agreeing with it. Yes, I am a fraud. <laughs> and their anxiety, and then, but and it starts to come down. And then I said, and now the voice in your head that's repeating it, I want you to make that voice distraught. Like it's emotional and distraught <laughs> as it's agreeing. And, and then they got a very strong kind of, uh, you know, flaring of their anxiety. They kept doing it, and then it kind of started going down and going down and going down. I was teaching them how to welcome the sensation of the anxiety. Good. And then I gave them propanol. And a week later, they came back, 
and said, uh, it was the strangest thing ever. I, it was like that entire thought was gone. And you, and how many times did they take the propranolol? Once. Once. After an exposure that lasted five minutes. And they said the, in all of the anxiety, basically they could like thoughts that used to lead in that direction just went nowhere now. Oh my, do you have any idea what's going on? In the brain. So, yeah, when, whenever you alter the threat label of something, that threat label gets in line for reconsolidation in your hippocampus. And it's there for about four hours. And if at that very moment, not before and not later, but at that very moment when it's entering the line, you give a beta blocker that crosses the blood-brain barrier, like propanolol, it erases the, the threat label while it's waiting for reconsolidation. So even if this is something you've experienced over and over again? Yeah, and I've... Um, the threat, you know, in I, other words, I, the threat that I am a fraud for him. Exactly. It doesn't, it didn't matter. So he was able to, it was diffused. And I've done this probably 60 times with patients or more. So oh. my, the only reason I don't like doing it is because it's too powerful. I would rather teach people more natural ways to not be afraid of their thoughts and to see that, hey, the part of your brain that gets you emotional about thoughts doesn't even know the meaning of the words. Correct. So the amygdala, the amygdala yes. doesn't have language. And so it responds to these thoughts, you know, because it sees how much you avoid them when they come up. Kevin, and your we need to take a of the thought. We need to take a quick break and come back. This is so good. We'll be right back with Kevin on Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Doctor coming back to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio here with Dr. Kevin Majors today. And Kevin, before we get into flow, I wondered if there was anything else you wanted to mention in regards to how we're reframing threats as non-threatening using the amygdala. Yeah, so one thing that I think is a, a very interesting, you know, when people take medicines, they kind of, in a way, expect the medicine to do the work. Yes. And that can take away their sense of even confidence. And they see themselves as unable to change themselves. And so the way I, the way I see it, the, what medicines do, like SSRIs, is they reverse a kind of, it's called a negative processing bias, which is that, you know, if you continually are complaining and dreading, those muscles of complaining and dreading, noticing the negative, get very big because you, you use them a lot, right? And so, and that, that means that you're really, really good at handling negative stuff and you see it everywhere. So your brain, your brain just got good at processing negative stuff. And so... The medicines do temporarily reverse that negative processing bias. So it's like, but it doesn't address the cause of it. So if you want to experience what it's like to change your own brain chemistry, here's the experiment. The moment you feel like you're going to complain about something, stop yourself and say, aha, here's my chance. And instead, find a way to look forward to it as an opportunity to grow. And you'll feel something in your brain take place. That is your brain changing. So and bring it on. You actually, yes, bring it on. That's you actually, when you notice you're dreading something, and say, ooh, here's my chance, and you flip it into welcoming and, you know, and trying to be eager for some way to grow or, or to let this bring out the best in you or something to embrace in it, then you actually are changing your brain in a real way. And you are reversing the negative processing bias and doing what those medicines are trying to do, but you're doing it in a better way. Wow. So whereas our brains can influence our behavior, our behavior can also influence our brains. Is that correct? Exactly. The brain is the organ that responds to behavior, period. Ooh. And if you change your behavior, you change your brain. That's incredible. Back to something explicitly Catholic, and that is the, the Mass. After the Our Father at Mass, the priest prays something called the embolism. Before 2011, this included the phrase, keep us free from sin and protect us from all anxiety. And now it's yes. safe from all distress. Why is that there? 
And can you confirm that anxiety itself is not sinful? <laughs> exactly. So one thing is that, that that always kind of got to me, because the, <laughs> the, Latin, the, the Latin is perturbation. Ah. Omni perturbatione. And it's referring to objective things. So distress means, it also means upheaval. Ah. Or, so it's, it, it, it's, it has a much more objective connotation, not a subjective experience of anxiety. Ah, so the change was good. Yeah, the change is totally the right direction. And anxiety itself is not sinful for our audience. Is that correct? Anxiety itself is, is not sinful. It's, you know, it's something that, um, you know, that in the path to full-blown holiness is incredibly useful at reorienting us to God. Wow. So, so it, you know, we, we all have to be like, you know, making use of everything to bring us closer to God. I think anxiety is particularly easy to use to then <laughs> you seek for, the, for God. You're, you're a glass half full kind of guy, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was sarcasm. Um, no. Oh, <laughs> I, I'm going to try and sell that to some of my folks with anxiety. But honestly, the way you describe it, this is an opportunity. If you look at it that way, you reframe it, then it does. It, it's a it's a blessing in a way. Now, here's a question that yeah, comes from we were, yeah, exactly. from a clinical psychologist who listened to the, your last show, enjoyed it, but this person said that their patients don't seem to have the level of insight necessary to use the techniques that you mentioned. Is there a certain level of insight necessary to use ACT and breathing? What what would you say? Uh. I think that if you were just dealing with the most basic physiologic training, you could show people how when they're anxious and their fight or flight's all gearing up, you know, that the effect that has on their heart rate, and you could show them how to activate parasympathetic, which then is how you dissolve the fight or flight response. And you would teach them breathing four seconds in, pausing for two, four seconds out, pausing for two, and breathing through their nose, not their mouth, not forcing the air out as you exhale, just let it happen, while trying to think of this as a way of practicing. So just thinking about reframing like practice Mm -hmm. doesn't require much insight at all. Um, Just talking about how to change the breath already is a lot like mindfulness. Great. And my and mindfulness itself doesn't require a whole lot of insight. And we'll say another show for that. It. That's a great yep. topic. We promised people we'd get to flow and that in some ways anxiety and flow are opposites. They're different interpretations of adrenaline but experiences. So what is flow, Kevin? Yeah, flow is the highest state of performance you can attain. Okay, so period. That's just what it is. Uh, ultimately, flow is the highest exercise of the virtue of work. Uh-oh. So the, the virtue of work is made up of order, intensity, and constancy. And in flow, you have each of those to such a high degree that it requires essentially no effort to stay in it. There's no distractions to take you away. There's no impulses to take you away. All of your intelligence is entirely directed to one thing, which is the task at hand. And it's, is it kind of like what people talk about being in the zone? Um, yes, although that, I think, can be two things, because it could also be the kind of doppelganger flow, which is hyperfocus. So in flow, the person, you know, him or herself, is entirely in dominion of their own attention, and they're doing a task typically that they love, where they know the steps where it unfolds and where it challenges them. And then they're, and they stay in dominion over themselves. If you interrupt them, they can just transfer all their attention to you and then right back into the task. It doesn't break flow. Hyperfocus is what happens with people playing video games or watching an engrossing movie. Not that they're bad, but now the object of your awareness has dominion over your attention, not you. Ah, so it, it and, so, and those people, yeah. If you so if you interrupt them, they get angry. Ah. But, so there's differences, and so you they could think that they're in the zone, 
um, because they lose track of time. That's a, a common thing for both of them. Yes. But, but it's not the perfection of work. You wouldn't describe their activity as order, intensity, constancy, live to the max. So when you read about the original researcher of flow, a psychologist named Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, in, when he's talking about flow in his book, is he conflating or combining both the dominion of self over work or the domi- and the dominion of work over self, or is he separating them out like you just did? You know, I, I would never want to be critical in any way of him because he was such a pioneer in the field. Yes. You know, and so I think that you can find all the right ideas in, in his writings. Yes. I think that, you know, decades go on and things get clearer perhaps, but... But but uh, but he but he did have a lot of the, I think, really groundbreaking insights. Oh, absolutely! That a world a world a world of good. So well, yeah, well, so you can find it's just later. I think we've gotten better at just stating things a little more clearly. Because I don't know if it was his book or another website where I read his flow is how they design video games. So, but it's, it's yeah a, to imitate it. Yeah. It's a counterfeit flow. And yeah, yeah I, don't, I don't think it's really necessarily, I mean, who knows? Maybe there are like professional video games players that can say that, yeah, I actually have order, intensity, constancy to the height. And it really is great work for them. Well, maybe okay. I don't know. As, that's not the typical experience. Okay. Yeah, we could test it by seeing if they get angry. <laughs> right? Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> now, that, I think so. I, I had a question about kind of anxiety as, as the opposite of flow. When somebody's feeling anxiety, they feel it and they don't like it. With flow, can you mm-hmm. feel that? Can you feel when you go into flow and you? No, know you, don't, you wouldn't. You wouldn't be. A, it's not a self-reflective state typically, um, except at maybe some of the highest levels. You're able to have that awareness without it hurting the awareness. Uh, I think there's a spectrum within flow itself. Uh, so in some ways, anxiety and flow are opposites, because with anxiety, your everything takes effort, and you have a lot of distracting thoughts and noise in the head. And fully you have silence in the head. And anxiety, you have uh, lots of impulses to do things, too. So in some ways, it's the opposite. And I think the, the stages, like how you get from anxiety to flow, yes. uh, are uh, the key thing to know. And I keep talking about them, but step one is reframing. So if you start reframing and say, yeah, this is exactly the opportunity I need, Step two is mindfulness, and step three is stretching yourself in a deliberate challenge. Okay, so that's actually, in those steps I got just from learning how to maximize exposure therapy for severe anxiety disorders. So if you're going to do a good exposure for anxiety, and say, you know, it's a fear of heights and you have a balcony in your office, well, you'd have to get the patient looking forward to the exposure as an opportunity to learn, you know, not, and so not to see it as a threat itself. So that's the first thing is reframing. And the second thing is you'd have to teach him how to feel fully the signal of his anxiety, not distract himself from it. And then third, you teach him not to hide on the wall of the balcony, but to lean into it, go to the railing, look over. Literally lean into it. in the face it. of the challenge, yes. <laughs> And if, they, if you do those three things well, the exposure can take a couple minutes, and it's done. And if you do it poorly, it could take a couple hours. Wow. If he stays on the balcony, he will eventually not have anxiety, and it will follow the same shape of a curve. The only difference is how long will it take. And I got very good at getting people over anxiety in minutes by following those steps of reframing mindfulness and embracing the challenge. It, There's a whole neurology as to why those are there in those steps. Is this in a book anywhere, ever, though, Kevin? <laughs> there, are, there are pieces of it in all the neuroscience literature. <laughs> so I, I'm trying to give like, a, a clear summary of the vast literature. So, but what's the coolest thing is that if you're sitting down to do a task, like, let's say you're going to be working on a problem set if you're a student. If you're dreading the task, uh, then you, the task is going to take much longer. But if you look forward to the task eagerly, it's an opportunity for practice. You reframe the task as in some way that you're going to get good at practicing something. Now it's going to be much easier. And if you settle the mind, so that, you know, and this is what we'll talk about in another time of mindfulness, so you bring total silence 
So this is all those things pulling your attention. And then you find exactly how you're going to stretch yourself in the problem set and by when you're going to try to finish it. And then you launch completely into the task. You can go into flow at will. Reframing mindfulness and challenge could put you into flow immediately. Oh, and so, and so it's so good. Yeah, yeah, and that's like the whole point. That it was it's so effective. That's why I got optimalwork.com. And that's and on your website. Walk, op- yeah, that's that's optimalwork.com, which is just yep. It helps to walk people through those steps. There, it's built into how everything is done. Um, when a person does a sprint to start starts a sprint, do you have and to be walks in- them through those? Do you have to be intentional about going into flow? You, people aren't going to accidentally find themselves in it, are they? You have to act. You have to intentionally challenge yourself in some way. But you're not trying so to go into the, flow. You're trying to do something very well at your best. At yeah, my best. you're trying to do something at your very best. So you know, and it's so that means that the challenge of this next hour, like my embracing that challenge, which is actually the way that we embrace the cross is embracing the challenge in this next hour of work, uh, that would actually put me right into flow. So let's go to St. Paul. Does this have something to do with when St. Paul says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake? He's turning sufferings into joy. Is this a practical way you're talking about this? Yeah, so you think of how, how, like, if a person is going through their day you know, and working poorly, half working. Imagine a college student sleeping in the library and not doing anything. Well, how are, that's not embracing their daily cross. You know, I always said that, you know, if you come after me, you take up your cross daily. Yes. yes. So the daily cross is precisely the challenges we face in the course of our day that, for love of him, we embrace fully. You know, and when we do that, we receive the blessing and we rejoice in those sufferings, as St. Paul says. Kevin, we've come to the end of the interview. Is there any other book or website besides OptimalWork.com you'd like to recommend for listeners? Uh, no, I mean, my other website is called PurityIsPossible.com, uh, which applies all of this to how do you grow in virtue of purity. Uh, that's another, another big topic. Kevin Majors, thank you for being with us on Dr. Doctor. This will be another hit among our listeners. God bless you. You're so welcome. We'll be back with Sorry. more on Dr. Doctor. Great. And we're back with Dr. Doctor and the medical trivia question related to the amygdala. Which uh, Kevin talked about, the amygdala, kind of the fear center in the brain. And he said that the amygdala doesn't use words, it doesn't use language, uh, which is true. So the question is, what edible item is the amygdala named after? Andrew, did you know the answer to this before? You know, the the thing that gave it away was actually Barbara Golder from the previous episode where we talked about murder mysteries and medicine. For people who are are interested, you should go back and listen to that. Very interesting. Yes. So if you smell bitter almonds, it's a sign that somebody has probably been uh, poisoned with arsenic. So amygdala means almond in Greek. Cyanide, right? I'm sorry, not arsenic. Cyanide. Thank you. Yes, cyanide. Mixing up poisons here. Yes, it's something that I would do. Cyanide. I even have it written down in front of me. Yes, I can read most of the time. My amygdala m- must have been on. It doesn't use language. So the almonds in the wild have a naturally bitter smell. And so if you eat wild almonds that aren't ripe, they have a lot of cyanide, and 50 of these almonds can kill you. Now, there was a mutation years ago, hundreds of years ago, which deactivated the production of that. So in the almonds that are grown for cultivation, they really don't make cyanide anymore. I, I liked the description of domesticated almonds. I had never, <laughs> never envisioned that before. Yeah, they just stay in their lane. Seems they like they merge nicely. There's a great nicely. cartoon there. Yes. But uh, yeah, domesticated as almonds a, are as, safe to eat. As opposed to free range almonds. You really want to stay away <laughs> from those. Uh, those could be unhelpful. Kevin was just, I mean, he was just knocking out of the park all night. Uh, I think one of the reasons why we enjoy this so much and listeners do is because there is so much anxiety in our culture and there is such a pressure to try and just brush it under the rug, try and find a way to, to work around it, where I love what Kevin says. You face up to it and then you can truly work through it and overcome it. And, and he gives you 
a, a way to do it. I mean, his OptimalWork.com, it talks about turning anxiety into flow through three steps. Reframing adrenaline as an opportunity to learn or anxiety, an adrenaline state. Secondly, mindfulness, allowing yourself to experience the anxiety, not wrestle with it and not try to run from it. And third, do a challenge that will stretch you in some way. Lean into the pain. If you have a, a fear of the dark, going into a dark room, a fear of heights, going closer to a, a railing. And he says after a period of time, sometimes it's only minutes if you're leaning into it, that threat is erased and it doesn't happen anymore. I mean, this is life-changing for people. Man, I'm, I am so happy that we get to spread this good news, and I really hope we can have them on again to talk even more about mindfulness. Mindfulness, which is the second step in turning anxiety into flow. Once again, we thank you listeners for being with us for another episode of Dr. Doctor. We are the official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association, and we come to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Please share the good news of past episodes with a friend and invite them to listen on iTunes or Google Play Podcasts. And be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor, where we will be discussing brain death, the subject of the November special issue of the Lineker Quarterly, a medical moral journal, with Deacon John Traveling, a doctor as well, and Sister Dr. Mary Diana Drager. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word DOCTOR to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor.